Welcome to The Chase. The Chase is a white arc podcast aimed at specifically giving you an insight into what makes great leaders and entrepreneurs in a variety of organizations tick. We call them chiefs. My name is James Chufatelli, and together with my White Arc co-chief, Joe Hands, we're going to attempt to take you on a journey and talk to as many chiefs across as many industries as we can to give you an insight into A, what makes them tick, and B, what makes their enterprises thrive, and more importantly, what they've learned along the way. The Chiefs. Today, I am very, very excited. That's two varies. That's a lot of varies. To have with us Colin Ellis. And people who haven't met Colin, you are going to feel wowed after listening to this podcast. I had the pleasure of seeing and meeting Colin in action with my direct report team that I'm looking after at the moment. And he brings something different to the table about challenging organisations and making change stick. And every organisation knows that one of their biggest challenges is actually being able to execute change. And a lot of people tell you that they can help you deliver, but Colin is different. His thinks on what companies can do around this is terrible. And Colin focuses on simple changes that people can make to get their change agenda to stick, including changing the culture of an organization, one change at a time. It's not like a big bang, it's how to do it in incremental steps, practical, inspiration and just an amazing guy to work with once i've met colin i wanted all the listeners on the white art podcast to meet him too so today i have colin ellis and i have one of his books here with me and he's got some in the background culture hacks he's got a couple of other books as well that he'll talk you through so i'm gonna get the ball rolling and we'll find all about colin so Colin, the first question for you today is, could you tell us a little bit about your leadership journey and how did you land here? Yes. Hello, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast and thank you for building me up to the point now where people listening to this are like, this guy, this is better be good. You got two varies. It's like a Monty Python sketch, Colin, two varies, Ellis. My leadership journey. I think it's, it's littered with mistakes. Joe, I, you know, when I think back to my 30 year career as a, as a permanent employee, uh, I did what most people do. I kind of observed, I, I really wanted to work, right? I, academically, I wasn't very good. I was a highly social person, but didn't really feel that I fit in high school. So as soon as I could get a job, I did get a job. I'm making it sound like it was a choice. I actually got suspended for, for gambling <laughs> and, and was forced to leave. So that's a whole other podcast. And so, you know, I, what I did when I started to work was really, I flourished, I think, when I worked. I, I started to observe kind of management styles and, you know, I wanted to be part of teams. I'd grown up playing lots of sports, so I kind of enjoyed being part of a large team. And then when I became a manager myself, it was really a case, much like every manager does, is, is exercising the good things that you've seen and trying not to do some of the bad things that you've seen. But like anything in life, there's going to be hiccups along the way. And, and I think if I can characterize my leadership journey when I was a permanent employee, I just wasn't afraid to try different stuff, Joe. Yeah. Listen, it didn't always work. It didn't always land. But I, I always focused on being a good human being. I wanted to be the kind of person that could make others feel good. Yeah. 
And even though often I didn't set expectation in the right way, so often I had to have difficult conversations, I'd still like to think that when people look back and, and when they worked with me, they were like, he was a good person to work with. I think that was my goal. And it's a really interesting one, right? Because there's this concept about, as a leader, do you need people to like you? Do you need people to respect you? And I don't know the answer, and I've probably got the wrong balance as well, but... Do you have a perspective on that? Like how much of it is, yes, you want to be genuinely a good human, so I agree with that, but how much of it do you need your team to like you versus respect you? So when I first started work, my dad sat me down. One of the only bits of advice he ever gave me uh, was to say, he said, when you're in work, people don't need to like you, they need to respect you. And it was almost a kind of excuse to being like, listen, you can treat people like however you want as long as they respect you. I guess to answer the question is people have got, I think, I think often there's this inference that you have to be a kind of lower emotionally intelligent version of yourself in order to get work done. And you have to rant and rave and scream and shout and lose control of your emotion. I don't agree with that at all. I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've lost control of my emotion in the office and learned pretty quickly after it. So I think that your employees or your team should respect the job that you have to do but like who you are as a human being too and yeah. so i think you can demonstrate those without losing control of your emotion and treating people disrespectfully yes yeah, interesting and i also think it comes back to a term that's used quite often authentic leadership right and whether you like the term or not or it's a wanky term actually genuinely just being who you are it's so much easier than trying to be somebody else or trying to be the leader that you think people want you to be like I don't know if I'm just getting old and cynical but I think I just am who I am now it doesn't mean that I don't have to pivot the way I'm dealing with certain people but you kind of get what you get which means every day you get the same thing because it's just me which I think is okay unless you're a dick, in which case it's <laughs> totally not okay. And I suppose that's the issue I have with authentic leadership. I yeah. joked at the time that Donald Trump thought he was the most authentic person on the planet. He was a racist, misogynistic. He was all of the ists, which you don't want to be. And so I think authenticity can be quite subjective. We want to create the kind of environments, the kind of cultures where people can be their best self. Yeah. And, and we want to make sure that it's safe to do that. But, but as soon as someone starts behaving disrespectfully towards another human being and undermining that safety, then their version of authenticity needs to be brought into line. Yeah, okay. I, I like that. So can you tell the listeners, what is it that you do? Uh, what do I do? I help organizations transform the way they get things done, Joe. I do that through motivational speaking and facilitated programs. Uh, that's the short answer. You I, you summed it up really well at the start of the podcast. I, I focus a lot on comments. I got trolled on LinkedIn once, which is way <laughs> that you're on a, you're on a trajectory. This guy was like, I don't know why people like this guy. All he does is talk common sense, which is like the best compliment because I think <laughs> We often lose sight of the simple things and what we end up doing is trying to do this big bang approach, particularly to culture transformation or big major program delivery, when actually what's required is that we incrementally improve those micro experiences. So it starts from a position where we redefine the kind of team or the kind of organization or department we need to be. Yeah. And then it's, it's adding on that. So I help organizations to do that themselves. Yeah, and, and I agree with you, right? I think that 
One of the things I've liked about when I've seen you talk and when I've seen you present is it's not, oh, my God, I'm just going to change the culture. Because to me, you kind of go, that's overwhelming. How do you do that? And actually, when you read your book and you hear you speak, it's like, what are the changes you're going to make this month? What are the small things? What are the incremental things that you build a momentum, right? You build and people see a difference and then they get on board, right? And it reminds me of this video on the internet where someone starts dancing and then someone else starts dancing. And it's just about building that momentum because the first people who start dancing have got to be a bit more bold. But as more and more people kind of get on board, it gets easier and easier, right? So it's, Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I like the that's, yeah, that's Derek Seaver's TED Talk, uh, yeah. the, the Lone Nuts. And <laughs> it's a, one of my favourite TED Talks, mainly because it's only three minutes long. And I think once you get someone who's doing things just a little bit differently and they start to catch on, they start to work, then others start to do it. I still think too many leaders talk themselves out of changing culture. Yeah. They're very good at talking about culture, but they talk themselves out of it by putting it in the too hard basket because they see it as this big granite immovable object rather than a series of smaller interventions to evolve and grow the culture to where it needs to be yeah it's very very exciting so what do you love about your job well give an extrovert a stage joe and it's hard to get them (laughs) off it to be perfectly honest with you. you know i only started working for myself age 46 i had no desire to do it for myself i never thought i would ever do it i it wasn't something that I planned. I was a, a senior exec in government at the time, and I went to a conference and was distinctly underwhelmed by what I was seeing and hearing. And rather than moan about it, which is the very British way of doing things, <laughs> I just decided I would give it a crack myself. And what I love is being able to kind of provide moments of inspiration and motivation for people who may have been in a position that I once was where I was just like, I'm stuck. I just need one thing that I can do, or I just want to hear something that lights a fire inside of me. So I spend a lot of time thinking. I spend a lot of time researching for statistics and quotes. I I spend a lot of time thinking about my style of delivery such that it creates that excitement inside someone. So when I see that change either in people or teams, that's, that's what I love most about my job. It's really, really exciting. And especially when you start off with the company, and you see where they start from, and then you look back over the course of the work you've done with them and, be, and see the difference, that would be pretty exciting. It's really exciting, but I think the most exciting part is that they've done it themselves. You know, every time I start a new program, whether it be culture or helping a, a, a major program, you know, I always say that my job is to help them create the foundations, and then from the foundations, they need to go and build the house. Yeah. So my job, in a sense, is the easiest job. Now, for, for organizations that want a little bit more inspiration every month, then I'll come back and hold them to account. But actually, there was one team whose, whose engagement scores in, increased by 30% in, in just over three months' time. And they were like, oh, it's so awesome, blah, blah, blah. I was like, but well, you did this. Yeah. I'm not there to help you implement all of this stuff. I help you to come up with the ideas, but then you've got to go and do it. It's super rewarding when that happens. So you've written a lot of books. I don't know if a lot. I don't know if it's called a lot, but how many? Four or five? Uh, five in five years. I think that's a lot for me. That is a lot. That is a lot. So tell us a bit about the books and what inspires you on the books. And one a year, that is a lot. Is this, is doing the fifth book easier than doing the first book? And what do you want to get out of actually writing these books? And what do you want your readers to get out of them? 
Well, I wanted to write how-to guides, Joe. I wanted to write the kind of book that people could pick up. And somebody sent me a, an image of one of my books recently with all of these little tabs down the side of all of these little things, which I love seeing. That is like, oh, it's hugely practical. My first two books were self-published. I didn't have the money to go with a publisher. And I focused very much on what I knew at the time for the last... 20 years of my permanent career, I spent it in in major program delivery and I headed up big project departments. And even though the work that I did was largely around building great teams, like I still think organizations make a massive deal out of delivering projects, but they just make such a mess of it. So I thought, oh, I'll write what I know. And so the first two books were kind of practical how-to guides when it comes to being a leader and building great teams within projects. Then my third book really put all of that together. I wanted to create one project book to rule them all. I call it the project book. (laughs) And then the book that I wanted to write was Culture Fix because I've been doing a number of things over my career as a manager that I wanted to kind of bring together in a way that not only explained very simply what culture was, but provided those tidbits, those insights into actionable things, and also provide case studies of where people have actually done stuff. So Culture Fix was the the book that I really wanted to write. And then Culture Hacks is my latest book, which is, especially in the pandemic, is my COVID baby. Because I wanted to, you know, provide things that people could do to stay connected, yeah. uh, to retain that sense of belonging. So those micro experiences that I talked about. And I didn't know that I could write. I didn't know that I would enjoy writing. I've read a lot of business books. I've read a lot of articles, blogs, research. So I really had to challenge myself because I'm not the kind of guy who would sit down and read a research report. So I've really developed that side of myself. And I love the process of writing books. Five books in five years would, would kind of be testament to that. And one of them won an award last year. So I don't know, I must be doing something right. Well. Must be. And are you going to write another book this year? I might not write another one this year. I think that there's a there's a lot of work. Firstly, I've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. I think one of the things that we've seen during COVID is that the, the organisations that thrived were the ones that took the time to define their culture. That's certainly been represented in my work and my engagement. So what I don't want to do is write a half-arsed book, to be no. perfectly honest with you. And, and this, I've got a lot on right now. But I'll probably write a book next year. I, I still feel there's a leadership book that needs to be written that's very practical. I don't know what that looks like yet. But uh, no, I enjoy the process of writing. So you've got to keep saying five books in five years, five books, because it sounds really good. Because then when you go... Five books in six years, five books in seven years. It doesn't sound as good, right? So this year's going to keep five books. Yeah, because then people are like, what happened to the other two years, lazy ass? Yeah, yeah. Only five in seven years? Yeah, when did you drop the ball? Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I mean, I read a lot of books and I agree. They're not that practical. And I think it is something that's missing about something that you can go, what are some practical tips I can take out of it? But one of the things I was going to say is I went on to one of those audio things and listened to you reading your book which you kind of were reading and kind of were giving like ad lib stuff at the same time and update stuff but and I think there's a visual image of you was it really hot and you were sitting in a non-air-conditioned space or something Joe it was 42 degrees and because of the hum of the air conditioning we had to turn it off in the recording studio oh I it was belting hot it was ridiculous and yeah, so my podcast, when I, when I did my first audio book, like I start, I just started going off the book and he stopped and he was like, he's like, you really do have to read the book. Amazon have got this thing. I'm like, screw Amazon. 
was like, what people want to hear is the reality. They also want to hear the fact that they want to hear updated information. So I totally go off script. I find updated information to add to the audio book because it's my chance to to keep that relevancy. But I have a lot of fun with audio books. It's brutal two days and and it was probably brutal for the podcast engineer listening to me for two days. And it was especially brutal those couple of days because it was it was a heat wave. So by the end of you, like, no, you got to single it on, and you're like, <laughs> gotta, I'm just, I'm just in my jocks. I've lost about 10 kg. Yeah, you can't unsee that now. It's just a wave of a man sweating through everything. We went for a beer after I recorded that and shit on LinkedIn. We went for a beer afterwards. I swear to God, didn't touch the sides. He's like, do you want another one? I was like, I might just need to shower in it. So that's how I felt that day. Anyway, you won't forget it, will you? It'll be no, like definitely those things not. you'll never forget. But no, it's the audio and then your voice. And it's like, oh, wow, it's Colin's voice. <laughs> what? What's been the most rewarding engagement you've ever done? Yeah, it's a great question. I think like every human being, I you know kind of like to get feedback on how the work is for someone to think differently. So it doesn't necessarily need to be transformative, Joe. It just needs to unlock something in someone that they never knew was possible. From my perspective, when I'm stood on stage, when I'm stood in front of a room, when I'm stood in front of a camera doing things virtually, I'm thinking about how messages land, but you can't guarantee how they'll land. There was a guy who came up to me on the, I was on the tram, it was kind of one of those weird moments. He came up to me, he's like, you calling out? I was like, yeah, yeah. He was like, he said, I watched the speech. He said, you did one thing. He's like, and it's changed the way, it was about communication. It's like, it's fundamentally changed the way that I think about communication. And I just thought that was so great. And so I had to give attribution. I was like, when I was 27, in one of my first real managerial gigs, my boss at the time told me that I couldn't communicate just in my way out to think about others. He's like, I said, we talk about empathy now. He was just like, but he made that point to me. I said, all I've done is built on his great advice with the latest thinking and the research. And I was like, so I'm glad that it's had that effect. So I think it's those things, you know, yeah, it's great when teams engagement scores rocket. It's great when you get a room full of people who are all kind of eagerly hanging on the words. But I think it's just that one little moment where you can get somebody to think differently about something that they're, they're, they're for me. And you don't often know about them, but they're the greatest right. rewards, I think. Yeah. And it's back to the little things and then it's back to something that you said right at the beginning of the podcast around sometimes you learn the most from, when I say failure, but like somebody has given you a piece of advice at a point and it's helped you and then you've built on it and then you've been able to then share that with other people and the role that you're in gives you the ability to be able to go and kind of share those little things in a way that's kind of practical with people. And so I think as you go on your leadership journey, all of the good and bad, all of the managers you've had, the leaders you've had that are good and bad, all the things you've learned, that kind of makes you who you are, right? Which isn't necessarily perfect because you can always learn and develop and grow, but your role gives you an ability to really share that with others. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. It does. And I, I still think managers have got that opportunity with their own staff too. I talk about the fact that managers key responsibility is to motivate and inspire their staff. A big part of that is coaching and mentoring. So many managers are too busy, not productive, by the way, but they're too busy. They're stuck in the cycle of busy, 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 that they don't actually get to the point where they're able to do that. Or else organizations don't give managers the skills. They don't help them to coach and mentor and do all of those things. 
So I think everybody has it within them to provide those little nuggets of information, whether it's kind of changing the default meeting time or being more visible with your people. There are little things that everybody can do to help others. Yeah, I like it. And so it actually kind of comes to a question that I have for you around, if you could give leaders, managers, leaders, a piece of advice, one piece of advice, what would it be? God, you're asking an extrovert to give one piece of advice. What about a backstory <laughs> and then three pieces of advice? I know. My one, one piece of advice would be that you can and should co-create your own culture. I think there's a fear that people have that they're moving away from HR policy or whatever it might be. But leaders should actively work with their teams to define the culture that they all need to be successful. That would be my one piece of advice. Not only that, they should learn how to do it really well, because when you create that safety within the team, when people feel that sense of connection and belonging, when people behave, collaborate and innovate in a way that takes the team forward, it unlocks happiness. And and when we're happy, um, it changes everything. Yeah. Happiness not underrated is it not at all one of my favorite things it's always a cfo not to diss any cfos out there but often when i show i've got a proposal with my culture programs the cfo is like yes but how are we going to manage this i was like go and have a look how many happy people there are afterwards that's how you measure it like and their response to that is well they can't say no they can't say no but they still want that tangible thing i think that's the thing with culture is often you don't see any tangible payback for six to nine months and that's what often stops people from investing in in any kind of culture program to begin with in the end of the day an organization is only as good as its people and its culture and it can have all the money in the world and it can have all the backings in the world and it can have all the processes and policies and all the crap on the internet that people don't read anyway in the world but if you even got your people engaged, you're not going to be able to deliver on any of it, right? Yeah, culture has and always will be the number one determinant of team, department and organisation success. And if you don't invest every year in redefining what it needs to be in order to deliver your strategic intent, you have no chance of ever getting there. Yeah, I agree. All right, last question for you. What do you wish somebody had told you 20 years ago about being a leader? Not saying you're old, but just... It's all right. I, I, I feel old. There's, there isn't a bit of me that isn't aching right now, Joe. I, I, honestly, I think like, what I want them to say is carry on. Mm-hmm. I think we are the sum of our imperfections. I think that I'm here in this position now because I wasn't afraid to get up. I wasn't afraid to learn from those mistakes, Joe. I wasn't afraid to find out new and different ways to do things. And so I would say to people who are on any kind of journey is keep going. There's no perfect answer. There's no perfect ending. All there is is you being the best of you. So technically very good at your job, emotionally very good at being a human being. And when you find the sweet spot there, it's that's when the real work starts. It's about maintaining that relevance to the way that we work and the way that the world is today. Oh, I like that. That's a good way to end. So thank you so much, Colin, for your time today. We could speak for hours between the two of us. Um, I could speak for just by myself. You could speak for <laughs> so, you know, it's for four or five hours. And that's a daddy here, right? It's 9.30 in the morning. Love the practical tips. People should definitely have a look at Colin's book, even just have a look at some of the videos on YouTube, just to get a feel for, you know, what you're trying to do, which is different. It's doing it in a different way. And as you say... 
Leadership is a journey. You're not going to get it right, but be bold. Make take some risks, right? And and be comfortable on how you just growing as a leader and how you're developing as a leader. But thank you so much for your time today, and I'm sure our listeners will love hearing from the very very amazing Colin Ellis. Thank, thank you, Joe. That's awesome. Thank you.